Mr. Justice Brennan announced the judgment of the court and an opinion in which Mr. Justice Douglas, Mr. Justice White, and Mr. Justice Marshall join. The question before us concerns the right of a female member of the Uniformed Services to claim her spouse as a dependent for the purposes of obtaining increased quarters allowances and medical and dental benefits on an equal footing with male members. Under these statutes, a serviceman may claim his wife as a dependent without regard to whether she is in fact dependent upon him for any part of her support. A servicewoman, on the other hand, may not claim her husband as a dependent under these programs unless he is in fact dependent upon her for over one half of his support. Thus, the question for decision is whether this difference in treatment constitutes an unconstitutional discrimination against servicewomen in violation of the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. A three-judge district court for the Middle District of Alabama, one judge dissenting, rejected this contention and sustained the constitutionality of the provisions of the statutes making this distinction. We noted probable jurisdiction. We reverse. Part 1. In an effort to attract career personnel through re-enlistment, Congress established a scheme for the provision of fringe benefits to members of the uniformed services on a competitive basis with business and industry. Thus, a member of the uniformed services with dependents is entitled to an increased basic allowance for quarters, and a member's dependents are provided comprehensive medical and dental care. Appellant Sharon Frontiero, a lieutenant in the United States Air Force, sought increased quarters allowances and housing and medical benefits for her husband, Appellant Joseph Frontiero, on the ground that he was her dependent. Although such benefits would automatically have been granted with respect to the wife of a male member of the uniformed services, appellant's application was denied because she failed to demonstrate that her husband was dependent on her for more than one half of his support. Appellants then commenced this suit, contending that, by making this distinction, the statutes unreasonably discriminate on the basis of sex in violation of the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. In essence, appellants asserted that the discriminatory impact of the statutes is twofold. First, as a procedural matter, a female member is required to demonstrate her spouse's dependency while no such burden is imposed upon male members. And second, as a substantive matter, a male member who does not provide more than one half of his wife's support receives benefits, while a similarly situated female member is denied such benefits. 
Appellants therefore sought a permanent injunction against the continued enforcement of these statutes and an order directing the appellees to provide Lieutenant Frontiero with the same housing and medical benefits that a similarly situated male member would receive. Although the legislative history of these statutes sheds virtually no light on the purposes underlying the differential treatment accorded male and female members, a majority of the three-judge district court surmised that Congress might reasonably have concluded that, since the husband in our society is generally the breadwinner in the family and the wife typically the dependent partner, it would be more economical to require married female members claiming husbands to prove actual dependency than to extend the presumption of dependency to such members. Indeed, given the fact that approximately 99% of all members of the uniformed services are male, the district court speculated that such differential treatment might conceivably lead to a considerable saving of administrative expense and manpower. Part 2 At the outset, Appellants contend that classifications based upon sex, like classifications based upon race, alienage, and national origin, are inherently suspect and must therefore be subjected to close judicial scrutiny. We agree, and indeed find at least implicit support for such an approach in our unanimous decision only last term in Reed v. Reed. In Reed, the court considered the constitutionality of an Idaho statute providing that when two individuals are otherwise equally entitled to an appointment as administrator of an estate, the male applicant must be preferred to the female. Appellant, the mother of the deceased, and appellee, the father, filed competing petitions for appointment as administrator of their son's estate. Since the parties, as parents of the deceased, were members of the same entitlement class, the statutory preference was invoked, and the father's petition was therefore granted. Appellant claimed that this statute, by giving a mandatory preference to males over females without regard to their individual qualifications, violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court noted that the Idaho statute provides that different treatment be accorded to the applicants on the basis of their sex. It thus establishes a classification subject to scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause. Under traditional equal protection analysis, a legislative classification must be sustained unless it is patently arbitrary and bears no rational relationship to a legitimate governmental interest. In an effort to meet this standard, Apelli contended that the statutory scheme was a reasonable measure designed to reduce the workload on probate courts by eliminating one class of contests. Moreover, Apelli argued that the mandatory preference for male applicants was, 
in itself reasonable, since men are, as a rule, more conversant with business affairs than women. Indeed, Apelli maintained that it is a matter of common knowledge that women still are not engaged in politics, the professions, business, or industry to the extent that men are. And the Idaho Supreme Court, in upholding the constitutionality of this statute, suggested that the Idaho legislature might reasonably have concluded that, in general, men are better qualified to act as an administrator than are women. Despite these contentions, however, the court held the statutory preference for male applicants unconstitutional. In reaching this result, the court implicitly rejected Apelli's apparently rational explanation of the statutory scheme and concluded that, by ignoring the individual qualifications of particular applicants, the challenged statute provided dissimilar treatment for men and women who are similarly situated. The court therefore held that even though the state's interest in achieving administrative efficiency is not without some legitimacy, to give a mandatory preference to members of either sex over members of the other merely to accomplish the elimination of hearings on the merits is to make the very kind of arbitrary legislative choice forbidden by the Constitution. This departure from traditional rational basis analysis with respect to sex-based classifications is clearly justified. There can be no doubt that our nation has had a long and unfortunate history of sex discrimination. Traditionally, such discrimination was rationalized by an attitude of romantic paternalism, which in practical effect put women not on a pedestal but in a cage. Indeed, this paternalistic attitude became so firmly rooted in our national consciousness that 100 years ago, a distinguished member of this court was able to proclaim, Man is, or should be, woman's protector and defender. The natural and proper timidity and delicacy which belongs to the female sex evidently unfits it for many of the occupations of civil life. The constitution of the family organization, which is founded in the divine ordinance as well as in the nature of things, indicates the domestic sphere as that which properly belongs to the domain and functions of womanhood. The harmony not to say identity, of interests and views which belong or should belong to the family institution is repugnant to the idea of a woman adopting a distinct and independent career from that of her husband. The paramount destiny and mission of woman are to fulfill the noble and benign offices of wife and mother. This is the law of the Creator.
unquote. As a result of notions such as these, our statute books gradually became laden with gross, stereotyped distinctions between the sexes, and indeed throughout much of the 19th century, the position of women in our society was, in many respects, comparable to that of blacks under the pre-Civil War slave codes. Neither slaves nor women could hold office, serve on juries, or bring suit in their own names. And married women, traditionally, were denied the legal capacity to hold or convey property or to serve as legal guardians of their own children. And although blacks were guaranteed the right to vote in 1870, women were denied even that right, which is itself preservative of other basic civil and political rights, until adoption of the 19th Amendment half a century later. It is true, of course, that the position of women in America has improved markedly in the recent decades. Nevertheless, it can hardly be doubted that in part because of the high visibility of the sex characteristic, women still face pervasive, although at times more subtle, discrimination in our educational institutions, in the job market, and perhaps most conspicuously, in the political arena. Moreover, since sex, like race and national origin, is an immutable characteristic determined solely by the accident of birth, the imposition of special disabilities upon the members of a particular sex because of their sex would seem to violate the basic concept of our system that legal burdens should bear some relationship to individual responsibility. And what differentiates sex from such non-suspect statuses as intelligence or physical disability and aligns it with the recognized suspect criteria is that the sex characteristic frequently bears no relation to ability to perform or contribute to society. As a result, statutory distinctions between the sexes often have the effect of invidiously relegating the entire class of females to inferior legal status without regard to the actual capabilities of its individual members. We might also note that over the past decade, Congress has itself manifested an increasing sensitivity to sex-based classifications. In Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for example, Congress expressly declared that no employer, labor union, or other organization subject to the provisions of the Act shall discriminate against any individual on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Similarly, the Equal Pay Act of 1963 provides that no employer covered by the Act shall discriminate between employees on the basis of sex. 
and Section 1 of the Equal Rights Amendment, passed by Congress on March 22, 1972, and submitted to the legislatures of the states for ratification, declares that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Thus, Congress itself has concluded that classifications based upon sex are inherently invidious, and this conclusion of a co-equal branch of government is not without significance to the question presently under consideration. With these considerations in mind, we can only conclude that classifications based upon sex, like classifications based upon race, alienage, or national origin, are inherently suspect and must therefore be subjected to strict judicial scrutiny. Applying the analysis mandated by that stricter standard of review, it is clear that the statutory scheme now before us is constitutionally invalid. Part 3 The sole basis of the classification established in the challenged statutes is the sex of the individuals involved. Thus, under 37 U.S.C. sections 401 and 403 and 10 U.S.C. sections 1072 and 1076, a female member of the Uniformed Services seeking to obtain housing and medical benefits for her spouse must prove his dependency in fact whereas no such burden is imposed upon male members. In addition, the statutes operate so as to deny benefits to a female member, such as appellant Sharon Frontiero, who provides less than one half of her spouse's support, while at the same time granting such benefits to a male member who likewise provides less than one half of his spouse's support. Thus, to this extent, at least, it may fairly be said that these statutes command dissimilar treatment for men and women who are similarly situated. Moreover, the government concedes that the differential treatment accorded men and women under these statutes serves no purpose other than mere administrative convenience. In essence, the government maintains that, as an empirical matter, wives in our society frequently are dependent upon their husbands, while husbands rarely are dependent upon their wives. Thus, the government argues that Congress might reasonably have concluded that it would be both cheaper and easier simply conclusively to presume that wives of male members are financially dependent upon their husbands while burdening female members with the task of establishing dependency in fact. The government offers no concrete evidence, however, tending to support its view that such differential treatment in fact saves the government any money. In order to satisfy the demands of strict judicial scrutiny, the government must demonstrate, for example, 
that it is actually cheaper to grant increased benefits with respect to all male members than it is to determine which male members are, in fact, entitled to such benefits, and to grant increased benefits only to those members whose wives actually meet the dependency requirement. Here, however, there is substantial evidence that, if put to the test, many of the wives of male members would fail to qualify for benefits. And in light of the fact that the dependency determination with respect to the husbands of female members is presently made solely on the basis of affidavits, rather than through the more costly hearing process, the government's explanation of the statutory scheme is, to say the least, questionable. In any case, our prior decisions make clear that although efficacious administration of governmental programs is not without some importance, the Constitution recognizes higher values than speed and efficiency. And when we enter the realm of strict judicial scrutiny, there can be no doubt that administrative convenience is not a shibboleth, the mere recitation of which dictates constitutionality. On the contrary, any statutory scheme which draws a sharp line between the sexes solely for the purpose of achieving administrative convenience necessarily commands dissimilar treatment for men and women who are similarly situated and therefore involves the very kind of arbitrary legislative choice forbidden by the Constitution. We therefore conclude that, by according differential treatment to male and female members of the uniformed services, for the sole purpose of achieving administrative convenience, the challenged statutes violate the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, insofar as they require a female member to prove the dependency of her husband. Reversed. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.